It is a magnificent country. I realized that I was liked at the academy, and that was very moving. I flounder a lot and progress a little. I have always been very much the student. It is not easy to become oneself. confident than ever. Vancouver Opera presents Bizet, Life and Times. When Bizet returned to Paris in 1860, France was in the throes of the Second French Empire. An 18-year imperial Bonapartist regime of Napoleon III, which spanned from 1852 to 1870. This made life challenging for all professional musicians. The only open road for a contemporary composer with serious ambition and without private means was almost exclusively the stage. At the time, there were two permanent opera houses in Paris. Opera, regarded as the premier national theatre, and the Opera Comique. Opera had originally been an aristocratic form of art, and it was at the Opera that this tradition endured, although heirs of the French Revolution had made great effort to bring it within the comprehension of the middle classes. The Opera was little more than a salon for snobs, the audience more interested in the latest fashions than the performance. The attitudes struck against their own composers were most telling. For almost three centuries, the accepted music in France was exclusively composed by foreigners. Lully in the 17th century, Gluck in the 18th, and Rossini in the 19th century. Although only marginally better, the opéra comique was more supportive of native talent. With its clear, elegant, polished, and often vulgar music, it was designed to cater to the Paris bourgeois. It had originated over a century earlier as a parody of the tragic stage. At the time, neither theatre was in a state of healthful growth, placing profit ahead of art at every opportunity. Outside of these two state theatres were the Théâtre Lyrique, mostly successful with revivals of foreign works translated into French, and the Théâtre Italien, which fed the craze for Italian opera and operetta, over which, by 1850, Jacques Offenbach reigned supreme. The prima donnas of the day were another great source of consternation for every young composer. The stories of their capacity to exert artistic control over every aspect of the production are legendary. It was fully expected that the composer would adapt their musical style to suit the particular singer. Failure to accommodate would often result in a very public ostracizing. The attitudes of the directors were little better, as their goals were purely financial. They regarded the opera score not as a piece of art, but as material they could manipulate and present in the most lucrative way. Yet another problem was the highly inflammatory and deplorable level of the musical criticism. 
At every opportunity, critics displayed prejudice, conservatism, and ignorance. Camille Saint-Saëns, a contemporary and lifelong friend of Bizet, quotes one of the most brilliant reviews by Théophile Gautier, a prominent music critic of the day. A real duty, and it is a true kindness, is not to encourage these composers, but to discourage them. What use is it to encourage them and their efforts when the public obstinately refuses to pay attention to them? With the lingering illness and ultimate death of his beloved mother in 1861, Bizet fell into a deep depression. In a letter to a close friend, he relates a dream, which provides a glimpse of his psychological state of mind. At night, I would feel a terrible agony. I would be forced to throw myself down in an armchair, and then I would think I saw my mother coming into the room. She would cross and stand beside me and put her hand on my heart. Then the agony would increase. I would suffocate, and it seemed to me that her hand, weighing on me so heavily, was the true cause of my suffering. Shortly before his mother's death, he told Gounod that he was conducting two love affairs. One was with his parents' maid, Marie Ritter, who produced a son, Jean, in 1862. Marie remained dedicated to the Bizets, nursing Georges during his last illness. The death of his mother at age 45 induced a lifelong fear of his own premature demise. Suffering from angina since the age of 14, and having regular attacks of articular rheumatism, he would often be bedridden with painful joints for weeks on end. Despite his recent trials and tribulations, he managed to finish his third envoi in the autumn of 1861, one year late. He had intended to submit a symphony, likely the Roma symphony he had projected a year earlier in Rome. Instead, he submitted two movements, the Scherzo and the Funeral March, with a supplemented overture. All were met with rave reviews. A fascinating anecdote from 1861 has Bizet's power and temperament on full display. One evening, he attended a dinner party of his former teacher, Alevi. The great Franz Liszt was also in attendance. After dinner, Liszt was persuaded to delight the company with one of his latest compositions. Naturally, its appalling difficulties and pyrotechnics rendered the crowd speechless. Being congratulated on his work and effortless execution, Liszt replied in kind. Yes, it is a difficult piece, horribly difficult. And I only know two pianists in Europe capable of playing it as it is written and at the speed I desire. Hans von Bülow? And myself. Recalling Bizet and his extraordinary memory, Alevi played a few chords on the piano, attempting to emulate what Liszt had just played, saying, Did you notice this passage, George? Bizet proceeded to play the whole passage from memory. Duly impressed, Liszt then produced the manuscript, at which point Bizet played the entire work without mistake or hesitation. Liszt took him by the hand, declaring, My young friends, I thought there were only two men able to surmount the difficulties with which it was my pleasure to adorn this piece. I was wrong. 
There are three, an injustice I should add that the youngest of the three is perhaps the most brilliant. The retiring Minister of Fine Art, Count Valeski, had recently given the Théâtre Lyrique a grant of 100,000 francs on condition that every three years a three-act opera was to be written by a young winner of the Prix de Rome. It was Bizet's good fortune that he was the first to benefit under this new scheme. Léon Calvallo, the director of the Théâtre Lyrique, had met Bizet, and smitten by his charm and talent, offered him the libretto to Les Pêcheurs de Pearl, the Pearl Fishers. Bizet eagerly signed the contract in April of 1863. The production was fixed for mid-September, giving him precious little time. He delivered the score in early August, and the opera premiered on September 30th. It received a rather tepid reception. Bizet was greeted with enthusiastic applause, and according to one account, was... A little dazed. His head was lowered, and revealed only a forest of thick curly hair, above a round, still rather childish face, enlivened, however, by the quick, bright eyes which took in the whole hall with glances at once delighted and confused. The tone of the press, however, was frigid and patronizing. He was accused of... Harmonic miseraries, born of a misdirected search for originality, an orgy of noise. It was only the composer and respected critic Hector Berlioz who praised the work, writing that... The score of Les Pêcheurs de Perles does Monsieur Bizet the greatest honor, so that we shall be forced to accept him as a composer despite his rare talent as a sight reader. Unfortunately, even Berlioz's positive appraisal did not spare Les Pêcheurs de Pearl. The opera failed with the paying public and was only given 18 performances. It was not played again until 1886, at which time Bizet was both world-famous and dead. (laughs) 